Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada and with the support of Omnovos, Canada's digital customer engagement company. Omnovos makes personalization easy by helping you engage the right customer at the right content at the right time. Find out how you can get started quickly and affordably so you can focus on doing what matters most, driving revenue and margin growth at www.realcustomerengagement.com. The Voice of Retail is also brought to you by Range. Range helps brick and mortar brands turn store visitors into digital customers. Learn how Range added 1 million new subscribers to retailer CRM in just six months by texting DATA to 55055 and unlock the strategy to massive database growth. In this episode, I'm in Ottawa talking with Lee Valley Tools President and CEO Robin Lee and Jason Tesse, Chief Operating Officer, about the rich heritage of this Canadian retailer their unique retail format, and adapting to the COVID-19 crisis with innovations such as the new contactless shopping capability for their stores across Canada. Next, veteran urban planner and author Joe Barrett talks about what makes our cities great, the current and potential impacts on cities with the massive changes happening today brought on by the COVID-19 crisis, and all about his recent book, Perfect City. But first, let's hear from Robin and Jason from Lee Valley Tools. Robin and Jason, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you both doing today? Wonderful. Thanks for having us. Doing very well. Thank you very much. Well, it's such a treat for me to uh, to speak with you both. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'll declare myself now. I'm a big fan of, of Lee Valley Tools, and I'm from Ottawa, and I'm a big fan of both of yours and the work you do. So it's a real treat for me to spend a bit of time here on the podcast. So why don't we jump in for those who may not uh, know of you as well. Why don't we start by telling uh, telling me, telling the listeners a little bit about your personal professional journey and your role at Lee Valley Tools. Robin, why don't we start with you? Well, um, I didn't have very much choice uh, of a career. This is our family business. I started working for Lee Valley when I was 16 years old. Literally have done virtually every job in the place. <laughs> um, you know, I, I built our first showroom when I was in my grade 13 year of high school and a friend of mine and and I uh, actually constructed the tiny showroom that uh, we first opened up to the public. Mm. You know, I've picked, packed, received, uh, uh, I do product design, I've written software. You know, it's it's just been an incredibly challenging and, and varied 42 years. And write copy too. So uh, I think you also. I want to get into that a little bit later because you have a particular flair for that as well. well. Jason, Jason, what about yourself? Uh, I don't think you're born into the business, but it, I feel I associate you with the business. So tell me about yourself. Unlike Robin, I had a choice, uh, and though uh, I'm not part of the family, I do feel adopted. The uh, I, my my started 25 years ago. I was uh, working on my um, university degree in a very tough job market, and I was stacking wood in a lumber yard here in Ottawa and winter was coming and the cold weather and uh, I was looking for uh, a job and somebody had told me about this local business where if you pick and pack really really well during Christmas rush you might be one of the few that get extended into a full-time job so that was the beginning of my journey at Lee Valley and uh, I made it my mission to be one of the one or two selected to stay on. And uh, 25 years later, really well supported and uh, much like Robin, have been able to work through multiple roles within the company. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's that's my journey. 
And today, what do you do? You're COO of, uh, give me a sense of what you do, not just your title, but, but what your, your scope of, and what you focus on. Well, um, my job is to uh, support Robin uh, and the family uh, as we kind of navigate the business uh, through its growth and its various stages of plateau. My focus is primarily on um, operations, execution, and strategy uh, uh, co-development with Robin. Mm-hmm. But as the uh, chief operating officer, uh, it's really just to kind of burn in the strategy and deliver as we need. But at the same time, uh, look for opportunities. One of my biggest roles in recent history is helping Robin with the succession turnover of our management team. At uh, 43 years, a lot of our knowledge and brain trust, you know, is going on to well-deserved retirement. Mm -hmm. The the biggest challenge is bringing in the right type of leaders, and uh, that's been consuming quite a bit of our time lately, up until March. You know, I had the opportunity last week or the week before to interview the co-CEOs from uh, Moose Knuckles, the uh, the apparel brand out of Montreal, and I've also had the chance to interview the folks at Farm Boy. Both have, have at one point or another, had the kind of a co-leadership structure. Robin, how do you how do you go about breaking the tie, so to speak? I guess at the end of the day, your name's on the building, so you win. But in a general sense, when um, you're looking at everything from strategic decisions to other, how do you, and there's a, a, I'm sure at some point there's different perspectives or different views. How do you, how do you, what's your process for going through and, and resolving that to, um, to completion? How do you, how, is, how does that walk me through how that leadership structure works in a kind of a day to day level? I, I certainly think that we, uh, you know, we don't pay an awful lot of attention to titles. You know, I, I think Jason and I are, are very complementary, um, you know, a 1A and 1B. And, and most days I'm not sure who the 1A is, um, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, I think we play off each other uh, very well. And, and we both have tremendous respect for each other's talents. You know, we, we really check with each other and, and check with the rest of the senior management team, too, on, on, uh, a lot of things, but you know, having worked together for so long, you can almost predict mm. uh, what the other person's um, uh, approach is going to is going to be, and it, it becomes very efficient to understand with whom you should be consulting and 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 about what um, you know, and and it's uh, um, it, it's incredibly effective when you have it, and it's also very difficult to onboard people into that structure. Right. Right, right. Um, you know, and, and then that's, uh, uh, to Jason's credit, something he's, he's been working very hard at and doing, uh, doing very well with, mm. you know, I, I jokingly say I'm a benevolent dictator, um, <laughs> within the business. And the great thing about the structure we have is I don't ever have to be the dictator. Mm. You know, we, we do operate by consensus and, and it's a little Orwellian that, you know, some pigs are more equal than others, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. um, the great thing is, is that you never have to use that, uh, that weight. And, you know, we're just very fortunate to have uh, a tremendous uh, management staff. Yeah. I've been speaking to a lot of leaders over the time of the COVID era. And one of the things that they, I wouldn't say enjoyed, but they observed or they, they wanted to capture was a speed of decision-making. In other words, there's decisions that were taking years to make whatever that decision was that were made in weeks, not months, not years. And many wanted to capture that kind of momentum. How would you describe your, your process for decision making? Is it, is it organic as you're describing it? Do you, you sleep on it for a couple of months or, you know, look for more data? I guess it depends on the decision, but 
Would you characterize, I guess, your decision-making process efficient, more efficient now, or it has always been, as you described, kind of organic and pretty efficient? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this over to Jason because he will know the quote better uh, about the good times and hard decisions, Jason. Yeah. One thing I would, I would declare is that uh, Lee Valley, throughout the culture, uh, throughout the organization, you know, from the family to um, our frontline staff, our brand protectionist. And pre-COVID, uh, that extreme sense of pride and protectionism of the Lee Valley brand makes decision-making tough because people are really vested in the outcome and success of the business. So, you know, you have a lot of, uh, I would say, well-earned friction in the system, but from Mm -hmm. a good place. Now, post-COVID, you know, the expression Robin was referring to is tough decisions in good times can be easier decisions in tough times. Uh, When your focus shifts to, you know, survival and navigating a global crisis, all of a sudden, the organizational focus comes down to two or three key priorities. Mm. And that protectionism, uh, the perspective shifts. And now, mm. you know, the, the natural friction in the system is actually support to do the right thing. And there's a little bit of forgiveness for uh, error in process or testing in field. Mm. But we certainly have uh, accelerated a lot of our decision making. And the innovation in the past eight months has been off the charts with respect to Lee Valley's history. There is a little bit of a question of being on a burning platform, too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you don't don't spend a lot of time figuring out which fire extinguisher is going to be the best one to use. You know, you grab one, and if that one doesn't work, you grab another, and you do it quickly. Well, I I was speaking yesterday with my partner uh, for another podcast I have, Remarkable Retail, Steve Dennis, and he was, we were talking on that episode around the how do businesses fall into disrepair with you know big businesses, big retailers who are filled with very smart people? And, and his observations are it's underestimation of the risk of doing nothing. In other words, the, the, the opportunity cost of, well, let's just, you know, Jason, you got me thinking about that when you say there's a lot of brand protectionists. There's, there's maybe an orientation in some organizations to say that everything's working fine. Let's not change it. But that's clearly gone for the COVID era. So anyway, it's great to hear that discussion between you, Robin. Um, I got ahead of myself a little bit because I wanted to follow that narrative a bit. Tell us about Lee Valley Tools itself. We've, uh, you know, the origin story, you've referred to uh, to its its heritage in Ottawa. I have certainly, and, you know, number of stores, what you sell, that kind of thing. For Again, for those listening who may not uh, know of Lee Valley Tools. We started off uh, actually around 1976 by making a barrel stove kit and these were the cast iron parts that you would bolt onto a 45 gallon drum and uh and you had an instant wood stove and and a wood stove that was about 82 percent efficient and uh for about 60 to 70 dollars and what a wonderful way to learn mail order mail ordering cast iron uh, <laughs> you know which which surprisingly breaks an awful lot uh, when yeah. it's dropped you know my my father who started the business wanted to build his experience in something completely unrelated to what he actually wanted to do which was uh, which was woodworking tools he had uh, grown up in a on a homestead in Saskatchewan and of course they never had tools. So he always had a, an appreciation for really good quality hand woodworking tools. And at that time, there was really no firm in Canada doing what firms 
uh, about 10 firms or so in the U.S. were doing. And using that sort of rule of thumb, if there's 10 in the U.S., there should be one in Canada right on. or room for one in Canada. So he decided to uh, to start a woodworking hand tool company, and, and it was his his uh, view that it could eventually grow to support uh, ten to twenty people. Um, you know that was his uh, wildly aspirational goal. And of course, uh, somewhere along the way, it just got out of hand, and uh, we ended up where we are. Um, but I think that that you know really what we've done over the past forty two years is follow our passion. If you set out to make money in business, you're going to have a really tough road. If you follow your passion, you know, customers see that and, and it resonates with people. You know, that's, uh, that's what we've done over the, over the 42 years. We started out as woodworking, but I think what it really, what our business expresses in as is that ability to create for yourself and to work with your hands that I call it the, the look what I made moment, you know, right. Uh, most people my age can remember coming home from grade school saying, you know, look what I made. And, and I've got distinct memories of things I've made, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Uh, so that, that act of creation is very, you know, very important to people. And whether it's cooking or sewing or home renovation or woodworking or gardening, you know, that ability to extend a measure of influence and control over your physical environment is really core to what we're about. Um, so a lot of woodworking tools, but, uh, you know, we, we, we enjoy a number of hand engaging products and, uh, uh, and we don't try to carry everything. We try to carry what we like and we Mm -hmm. know what we like. Um, so there's a very much an editorial component to what we do as a company. We, we have to believe in what we sell. Right on, right on. I mean, I mean, I, I'm the recipient of, of, you know, in the cooking world, I'm not much of a gardener and not much of a DIYer, but uh, from a cooking perspective, the great gadgets that, uh, not even gadgets, the great solutions and things that have made my life easier. Uh, and they're, you know, you're one of my first go-tos because I, I think I, I, I can't be the only person having this problem, you know, getting the juice out of a lime or lemon or whatever in my latest <laughs> kind of venture. Yeah, and it's, you know, that's our, our expertise really is in, you know, discovering and relaying context and value for a customer. Mm. Yeah. You know, in the area of, of uh, the culinary world, you know, we do not pre- profess to be professional shelves, but we know tools. We know what really works well and what doesn't work well, and we can explain it to you so you can decide whether it fits into, you know, what you do or your workflow. Jason, tell me about, uh, you go to market in an interesting way, in a couple of interesting ways, actually. You're still a catalog retailer, and not many of those left, but uh, I'm surprised there's not more with all of us at home, and there's fewer things in the mailbox. And and tell me a, a bit about the store experience, which is different, um, and how many stores you've got, and just give give me a sense of how you go to market as, as Lee Valley Tools. Uh, today, we're 20 stores across Canada, coast to coast, Um our store model is quite unique for those listeners who have never you know, been into a Lee Valley store. The history that we often share with people is that our origins were a catalog company. Canada Post was you know, the primary carrier. Years ago, uh, when there was a uh, postal interruption, uh, put the company at risk. And you know, we had to you know, move pretty quickly with respect to an alternative plan. And what we had done is we had turned one of our uh, facilities into a showroom, an expression of the catalog, where everything is truly on display, you know, one-off with the, the product number written right below it. And um, 
much of the visual merchandising was set up like you would see on the catalog page. And, you know, we modeled the in-store uh, catalog slip, which you went and would write down the products on the wall, bring it to a counter. We pick it out of the same warehouse that we would fulfill our orders. Hmm. The, the in-store design was, you know, something created out of necessity. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> decades later, we've just continued to roll out that model of a true showroom uh, with a back warehouse. And the, um, the fascinating part about it is, as many retailers today are rationalizing their existing showroom space and moving to showroom models, what was a unique, different approach uh, seems to have gone from what we were, you know, jokingly say is clipboards and showroom, old school to cool now, with respect to you know everybody jumping on this rationalization of what a showroom should look like and how to express in the showroom. So today, you know, we have true multi-channel. We've got stores, catalog, and digital. And uh, we're doing everything we can to kind of blur those lines and blend it into one experience. During COVID, you know, we actually created a feature on our website that you could uh, access while you're on your phone in our showroom. And you could shop with your phone, scanning product, check on-hand inventory, fill your cart, and submit to the counter. So once again, trying to blur the lines so that the customer can shop any way they like, but leveraging our unique showroom experience. Well, as you said, you're in in some ways you develop the experience, uh, and you know, twenty twenty five years ago by necessity. But you 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 wound up being way ahead of your time, and even more ready for the COVID year. So let me follow that thread a little bit. So tell me about you know you you had the showroom experience. Now you've got an app, so people can do contactless shopping uh, in the showroom. Is that is that what you're um, what you're talking about? That's interesting. Well, what happened was we, for years, we had been talking about when the technology was ready, leveraging our existing structure. And, you know, everybody has a phone. Uh, the reality was um, the clipboard and pencil system of writing down, you know, just wasn't for everybody. It, you know, certainly our loyal customers love it, but, um, you know, younger shoppers would, would struggle with it a bit. And uh, the question was, how can we leverage what we have and be appealing and attractive? So, the technology just kind of wasn't there, but in October of last year, we launched our new website, and uh, it made it very easy to have the development strength and the platform now to convert our website into an in-store shopping tool. Now, you use the term application or app. Um, it's actually not an app that you need to download and kind of clutter your phone. What's really innovative about this one is there's just an icon. The website recognizes when you're on your phone. And it presents you a little scan icon. You just tap that, select your store, and now you're off to the races. You're literally just, you know, navigating yourself through the showroom, scanning stuff, pulling up information, video. Uh, You could add it right to cart. You could save it for wish list. And then if you choose to check out, you could just submit it. We call out your name. You haven't touched anything. Your are bagged and ready to go, and you can just leave the showroom. Fantastic, fantastic. Right for the times, right? I mean, the times caught up to your model, basically, whether it's the showroom approach or the uh, or this this harmonization, as you're describing, of the channels. It's, it's really brilliant. When it comes to change and uh, people's acceptance, uh, a, a crisis, you know, creates a lot of challenges mm-hmm. and roadblocks, but also opens up tremendous opportunity for difference. And mm-hmm. uh, no other point in in our lifetime, will you see a willingness to actually try on a full scale a different method of shopping? So the timing was right in that sense as well. Well, yeah, for sure. I, I interviewed Roger Martin, kind of a strategist, and he said, not kind of, he's one of the top global strategists, and he was talking about how 
retailers and other businesses should consider consumer habits like a decaying asset on the balance sheet. What they used to do before is going to be very different or has the potential to be very different thanks to the, the jarring effects of the COVID era. Robin, um, you know, one of the hallmarks for me is in Lee Valley Tools is, is the write-ups and they're personal yet detailed and they leave nothing uh, to the imagination, but they feel like they're speaking to me. I mean, I just, I was just reading the letter you sent out to, uh, to customers uh, talking about a, a very realistic assessment of how the holiday is going to go. That was, a, I thought that was a brilliant letter. Who are you writing that for? Tell me about who your customers are. You've, you started with the heritage of the, uh, you know, the woodworker, the, um, you know, the, the, the skilled woodworker, not just kind of the average do-it-yourselfer. But now tell me about your customer. What do you know about them and, and how do you think of them? Well, the one, the one thing that I know about most of our customers is, is that they know the truth when they hear it. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's very important to, to me that, that we tell the truth in, in product write-ups. If, if we sell you too hard on something and it's not what you expected or not what you like, we're paying for that return. I mean, it's just inefficient business. And in a way, you know, our business is a performance art. Sales are your applause. You have to know your audience and you have to give your audience, you know, not only what they they want, but what they expect. And and I think for, for most of our, our customers, we're dealing with people that this is, you know, where the, they're engaged in a hobby. And, you know, this is this is really important to them. And the potential is always there for a long-term relationship. So it's very important that we're accurate in what we say and that we're accurate in setting expectation for the customer, not only about the product, but the utility and the value that they're going to get out of a product. You know, there are the products we say, you know, man, this thing is really expensive, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the best thing. Yeah, you can last a lifetime. Yeah, uh, last a lifetime and do what it needs to do. Yeah, that's right. And you know what? And I, I think cutting through the clutter of of so much marketing is maybe Uber marketing. You know, just that, just that direct honesty for uh, fans of uh, Tool Time on television. Mm-hmm. I like to say mm-hmm. we're Wilson. <laughs> you know, the guy on the other side of the fence that that, yeah. that dispenses that pragmatic you know, uh, advice, wisdom. advice and wisdom, Yeah, the unvarnished truth, so to speak to a uh, you know, bit of a pun on, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, you, you can never go wrong telling the truth. People will always come back and it's, you know, it's, it is a question of trust, but it's a question of relationship too. And, you know, even if, if you're sending them somewhere else, um, you know, customers appreciate that and they still come back to you. We've talked about COVID or we've mentioned it a couple of times in the conversation so far, but Robin, take me back to April, I mean, when when the full force of whatever this was going to be was starting to dawn on on leaders from coast to coast in all formats. How did you think about uh, uh, your priorities, and and how did you start to think about what the business would would do and become and react, and and how did you start to think about it? You know, what kind of products might be in demand, and other kind of products that you just can't move, or you know, what were you thinking in April? Well, you know, the, the first, the first thought is always, uh, safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and there was just a tremendous thirst and questing for information. Y- you know, how do we manage this? You know, where, what are the resources? What is the truth? What is the nature of what it is that we're trying to deal with? And it was a, a little bit in the early days, like, you know, trying to nail jello to a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, masks, no masks, uh, you know, mm-hmm. touches how the, you know, we, we just didn't know what we were dealing with. We, we made a decision 
to have stand-up meetings every single morning, uh, Saturday, Sunday, every day of the week uh, with the senior staff and discuss what we'd learned during the day. And those min- meetings, by the way, continue to this date. Uh, mm. Not Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we're, we've, we've got them down to, to uh, uh, three, four days a week. But, um, mm. but we still talk about what have we learned? You know, what's going on in each market? You know, how are the staff feeling? How are the customers feeling? You know, uh, what's working for us? What's not working for us? And so the sensitivity to change and difference, was it just incredibly heightened? Uh, during that period. Uh, and then, of course, when the shutdowns happened, you know, we, we were fortunate to be in the, uh, you know, to be a hardware store and, and one mm-hmm. of the essential groups that, uh, that could be open. But that didn't mean we could take risks with, with staff or customers. Um, you know, we're very fortunate that we have always had an order online pickup in store functionality with with uh and so it was a very very easy thing for us to go to a curbside pickup model yeah, and it, it, worked, it worked well i mean i i did it a couple of times myself it was great very smooth i, I do uh, it to this day yeah uh, you know i still order from our own store as mm-hmm. as uh for curbside pickup so i i think we were very well positioned and we we were right sized, I think, to to react to a lot of this. But you know, the human cost of of all of this is is something we're going to feel for at least a generation. Uh, yeah, I, you know. I suspect. I suspect for sure. I mean, um, you know, everything from the on the on the positive side. I was reading a report from my other partner, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie, talked about twenty percent lift in gardeners this year. Uh, half of which he kind of assumes will go away because they'll realize it's really hard work. Um, but, you know, just this different adoptions of, of, of different hobbies. I think it's going to, you know, what I think gardening for a lot of Canadians just adds a bit of control back in their lives, which we, sometimes maybe we feel we don't have. Well, um, I, I think to a certain extent, it really uh, reset the button on consumerism. Mm. Um, and it certainly, re- you know, hit the stop button on travel. People's worlds shrank tremendously you know they became digital or virtual and then all very very localized you know and 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 i think that's put people back in touch from you know anything from making their own bread to growing their own vegetables just just out of a desire to do something different i go back to that that ability to create and have some control Mm. over your environment which which i feel is very important in something like a pandemic is is to be able to exert that level of control even if it's only over a tomato plant it it's always been there as an element of your brand right the ability to create so now it it just ha- takes on a higher and higher need so to speak as as people you know need to create and be good at it and discover maybe they like it which um which we hope happens one of the comments i can just add on is um even prior you know to covid was rapid adoption of digital in every aspect of our life and this disconnect from the analog world and you know what had happened with covid when people were now at home trying to you know re-engage in community find activity is this reconnection in the analog part of their life which is whether it's gardening baking uh, interacting with people in a different way and um the nice thing for Lee Valley is we can help enable that reconnection, whether it's making bread, as Robin said, or the gardeners that you referred to. So 
we are very sensitive to that relationship of digital and analog in life. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, along an entire spectrum. My daughter is now a great mixologist, thanks to the tools from Lee Valley Tools. So we enjoy cocktail hour a little better, uh, thanks to you. You can imagine all the large and small ways our lives have changed. Last couple of questions to you, Robin. Um, three pieces of advice. You're, you've been in this business. You've been a retailer. You're in manufacturing. Uh, you're a Canadian, great Canadian story. Three pieces of advice for the retailers listening around. Um, you know, as they watch the industries around them transform, you know, is, is there a playbook that you would say, here's the three things you should be focused on. And, and if there's a playbook, what would those three chapters, first three chapters be entitled? What's your advice to retailers? Well, I can't profess to be an expert, but I can certainly tell you what's important to us. The first one is honesty and transparency, you know, with your staff, uh, as well as with your customers. The best ways to get through a crisis is to be, to be very open about what you're doing uh, and why. In, in the crisis. Really key for us, um, like some people running for president, is uh, understanding your base. <laughs> you know, know who your customers are and know what your differentiators are. You know, we're, we're not a transaction company. We're an experience company and we're a knowledge-based company. Nobody can out Amazon, Amazon. Right. Yet, well there, are, there are differentiators that reverse the question. How is Amazon going to compete with us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, for our base, you know, so draw in a little bit, focus on your core competencies and your base. And I think the other thing to do is really is to capitalize on every opportunity that comes your way. You know, it, it is a great opportunity to make mistakes and to learn, you know, and, and one of the things that, that we were very upfront in, in talking to staff was, you know, what should we stop doing right now to focus on how we're going to change. You know, there, there is a tendency to, in any business, to keep doing what you've done before. But mm-hmm. just, as, just as important is to figure out what to stop doing so that you can actually have that capacity to, to affect change. That's a, great, that's a great piece of advice. Um, you know, everything you start, what could we stop doing and, and what have we been doing that no longer adds value? It's a, one of those defining moments. Last question, Robin. For those who may be listening in government at any level, municipal, provincial, or federal, is there anything that, that you can say that would help you, a, a Canadian business a retailer, uh, working through all kinds of different things? Is there any one or two things that they could be doing today different or new that, that you think would help retailers yourself and, and retailers in general get through this crisis? Well, you know, I, I will, I'll start off by saying um, our government has been a heck of a lot more responsive and supportive than, than many other governments in the world. Um, speaking as a business, all any business ever wants is a level playing field. Mm. You know, mm. uh, we can compete with anybody else, uh, but we have to have that level playing field. You know, it's always it's always uh, good to use Amazon as the whipping boy. But you know, I can still buy products from Amazon in Canada and not be charged tax. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, if the government believes that people like paying tax, they've got another thing coming. Um, you know, just 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 having a level playing field. You know, uh, will let us compete on on our own merits. Um, Canadians can compete with the best of them. Absolutely. Um, but what we can't do is compete with bad policy. You know, well said. Well, listen, it, it's been such a great 
Um, pleasure for me to talk to you both. It's a, as I said uh, up front, I'm a fan of the business to begin with, but such a such a great Canadian institution. I wish you um, continued success and and safe holiday. And thank you again for both uh, joining me on the Voice of Retail podcast. Well, thank you very much for having us. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Joe, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I am doing very well and a, a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's really a treat for me to talk to you. I mean, I, you know, I, I picked up your book, uh, Perfect City, and, and uh, you know, with mentions of you being, I think, an urbanist and Jane Jacobs. I think we have a lot of things in common. Well, we don't have what we don't have in common is you're an expert and I'm not. But I just kind of like <laughs> I like cities and, and We're all experts you know, on I'm, cities. You know, I read through Sped read through your book. I want to take another good look at it, but it was really interesting and. and Thanks for being on the podcast and, and, you know, give us an opportunity and listeners an opportunity to understand um, a big picture around cities and then we'll kind of hone in on, on some more specific thoughts. Sounds but good. Why don't we Sounds kick, good. Yeah, yeah. Why, why don't we kick it off with a little bit about yourself, personal, professional journey, what you do at Urban Strategies and, and, and about the work that firm does. Sure. Well, I'm a partner at Urban Strategies and uh, I and, and uh, my, my co-partner, founding partner, Frank Lewenberg, started the firm about, uh, amazingly now about 40 years ago. Mm. Uh, and uh, we started off just the two of us and now it's uh, nearly 100 people. What we have tried to do essentially is to combine uh, a kind of planning regulation uh, perspective on the city, uh, zoning bylaws, official plans, and all that stuff, with a uh, with a kind of strategic idea of what kinds of places cities should become, uh, and so we we sort of live in the space between uh, the public sector and the private sector, which is essentially how development happens. Uh, nobody can build a building just by themselves; they always have to get some kind of approval for it. Uh, they always have to talk to their neighbors. Uh, they always need some kind of servicing systems. Uh, and so what and that this is not a, a book that's being written it's a building that's being built it's going to look like something it's going to be in the mm. urban landscape so we've also spent a lot of time uh saying what should this look like uh so working with the architectural profession so what i love about urban planning is it's kind of three-dimensional problem solving uh it's not just uh, accounting or legal or administrative is actually a thing at the end of it which can either be an ugly thing or a beautiful thing and uh, one hopes it will be a, a beautiful thing but also a functional thing and city building is incredibly expensive buildings are incredibly expensive so yes it's an art form but it's one of these art forms that operates right in the middle of the financial system which is also mm. fascinating and and the work that you do you're based in toronto but uh, you, and you do work in canada do you do work outside of canada what's your what's your kind of purview yes yeah, so, uh, we're, we're right across canada uh and i would say about half our business is there uh and then the other half uh is in various places in, in the world and seems to move around and i'm never quite sure why or where we end up but done a huge amount of work in england uh and scotland uh, in uh, Asia, uh, in Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Shanghai, uh, a, a lot of work in the United States. Um, and, uh, and then uh, suddenly I find myself today uh, doing a lot of work in Ireland, uh, which is quite lovely. Urban planning is very local because it should be grounded in the city you're working in. And certainly the administrative and planning systems are intensely local, but the principles are global. Well, let's, let's talk about cities. Um, 
And interesting, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Ireland, but I see Belfast in, in the book, and and I've been to Dublin uh, many times. I actually do some work for the Irish government. Uh, you know what a what a fantastic city and the surrounding cities. You know Galway, just a, an amazing city in a different way. But let's talk about cities. What makes them great, and then what leads them into decline? I mean, in your in this book, the perfect city, and and for the listeners, I'll put a link. Uh, in the show notes to uh, to pick it up, I, I highly encourage you to buy the book. Great, it's wonderful a great read. read. I'm, I'm glad you called it a bedtime read too, because it's not too difficult, folks. It's a it's an easy read. I hope. Yeah, I'd, I'd call it very approachable. I mean, it's, it's certainly not a, a technical planning guide, but it, it really gives you a high level of of all the things I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about. I mean, you call it a search for magic. I mean, what are the things? In your mind, that makes these cities great. You you have each chapter. You focus on a different city, New York and London and Toronto. And what is it in your mind that they share in common? What are those three things that great cities have? And then we'll talk about how they kind of lose that vibe over over time or could lose it. I think it's it's this wonderful creative collision between extraordinary people and an extraordinary physical environment. What's fascinating is that there's kind of a different time lag. Uh, you know, we, we, if, if we're lucky, we live in a city for 80 years, uh, on this planet for 80 years, and we maybe live in that period live in two or three cities. Cities have a much longer time horizon. So essentially, you're always living in the city that your father and grandfather and great-grandfather built and mother and mother and mother which has to be said so there's that fantastic collision and sometimes the city is uh uh, works well uh, and sometimes it doesn't work so well for for the new economy great cities uh in the uk like liverpool uh which were liverpool is one of the, the the great imperial cities of the 19th century and then when it lost that economic engine it fell into a rather sad decline, which is only now being reversed uh, uh, somewhat. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, a city uh, like Shanghai, which always had a kind of historical presence to it, but suddenly in the last 20 or 30 years has exploded in population. So hmm. it's now a city uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 million people. You have a city like London, which is you know, it was, it was a significant city in Roman times and went up uh, in Elizabethan times and then slumped and then went up uh, in uh, uh, sort of sh- uh, Shakespearean times and then slumped uh, and then went uh, up in colonial times and then slumped and had a huge burst of energy uh, after being battered to death in the Second World War and now I suspect is on a bit of a decline again. So uh, it, it's just fascinating and when you, you go into all these cities, and the question I was always asking myself is, what fuels a city's growth and what what engenders its decline? You know, there are, there are a whole bunch of different reasons, and, and it's not quite the same chemistry in every city. So, you know, let's, let's talk about um, the opposite end of that. You're described, at least by the publisher, as an urban fixer. You mentioned London. I remember, I don't know if you've read a, a great book called Ghost Map, which chronicles oh, yes. um, the, you know, the city of London was uh, and you know in the, in the late eighteen um, hundreds just just a teeming uh, not great city like eight million people if you can imagine that without sewers and yeah. they had a cholera outbreak yep. and the book it's a fantastic book about uh, yep. about London and and then the invention of what changed the world in some ways sanitary systems and 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 I think about San Francisco as well I I spent a lot of time in San Francisco in the late nineties the GoGo.com and I worked for Levi's and 
you know, then I talk to people who I still know, it's kind of like a hellscape sometimes in the way they describe it. How do cities, you know, f- rise and fall? I mean, there's some macroeconomic things, but a city like San Francisco has nothing to do with economics. You know, what, what is it that, is it is it their very success sometimes that leads to their... I think so. I think so. And I, San Francisco is a, a classic case in, uh, to, to look at. You know, clearly in California, San Francisco for the longest time was the second city to Los Angeles. Los Angeles was mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. place of big growth. And then San Francisco lucked out on one particular uh, industrial activity, uh, hardly industrial activity, a tech activity. Because tech activity really has no locational glue. It's not something that requires a port or requires uh, special resources. Uh, uh, it, it can actually almost go anywhere. It's completely footloose. So it goes to a beautiful place called San Francisco, where everybody loves to live, which had very good universities generating people uh, who uh, had all kinds of uh, ideas that fit uh, the, these economic opportunities. But in a funny way, it got loved to death. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's why it's having some troubles right now. San Francisco, the city, is, is an impossibly expensive place to live mm-hmm. for any normal mm-hmm. human being. It is beginning to create a cost structure in which the, the folks who work in all these businesses can't afford to be. And then the alternative is uh, out in, in uh, Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, which is very low density, has no transit system, uh, really has doesn't have enough housing range, etc. So it's one of these cities that, that probably, uh, in a funny way, it wasn't big enough to cope with the boom that happened. Uh, and it's fascinating now to watch uh, how that uh, tech boom is spreading to New York, a more traditional city, but a city which has got the scale that seems to be able to accommodate it better. Well, I'm glad you brought up New York. I mean, let's talk about the COVID era these past eight months. I'm really intrigued to get your thoughts on on, yeah. on this. I mean, it, it, it's funny. We, we've just been talking about history. You're describing London over the centuries. I mean, it's not the first macro shock. I mean, we can go back to the Second World War, the Spanish flu that has threatened the vibrancy of cities. New York City, one of my favorite cities beyond you know Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver just got hit so hard. Now, you know, there's a lot of talk, but I don't think there's as much evidence of people saying, all right, I'm done with New York. I'm moving out. If I if I don't have to actually work here, I don't want to live here anymore. But, you know, tell us about your thoughts around the lasting, if you have, I mean, the lasting, it's early to say probably, but the, the impact you see on the way people work, perhaps this could be the longest impact of COVID is people, more people will be working at home, therefore they move out. What do you think is going to happen to these yeah. major cities? I mean, you, you, we're in Toronto and, and downtown Toronto is today nothing yep. like what it was time. nine months ago, right? Yep. Uh, so how, how are you thinking? What lens are you looking at through through today's events towards the future? Well, uh, the first is the long lens. You know, life is long. Cities, life is long. Uh, and you point out the fact that uh, cities have shocks, uh, Spanish flu. But let's not forget that uh, 20 years ago, it, uh, two uh, jets crashed into the uh, mm-hmm, into the mm-hmm. World Trade Center. Uh, an awful lot of people thought that that was going to be the end of New York of high rise uh, uh, working and living. I think that the long term impact of COVID is not going to be fatal to the the kind of downtown dense office environment, but I do think it's going to have an impact, and it's going to have an impact because over the past really couple of decades, 
the square foot per employee in your typical big downtown office has gone from about 200, 250 square foot per employee down to under 100. Uh, as everybody's moved to open plan, uh, as everybody's basically been packing people in because rents are so high, you've got to pack them in. I think that trend is going to get reversed, partly because I don't think rents are going to be, keep going up any longer. Mm. There is mm. undoubtedly going to be some loss of office activity out to the suburbs. There's going to be some loss of people saying, no, I can do this job from home. But everything that I've seen suggests that the office occupancy of the immediate future when people do get back to work is going to be about two-thirds that of what it was pre-COVID. Because we're going to have to have extra spacing in the uh, on the on the office floor, uh, because they're going to have to be more offices and more cubicles rather than open plan. Uh, the whole idea of hot desking isn't going to work any longer. The second thing that's going to happen is that a, a proportion of your workforce is going to want to work at home for some portion of the week uh, and some portion of the workforce perhaps permanently. So that means at any one time you won't have 100% of your, your staff complements in the office. Uh, it's going to be uh, at home or it's not going to be their days to go into the office. You know, In our office, we're talking about a team A and team B mm. scenario once we get back to work, which will mean that only half people half of our staff complement will be in the office at any one time. So that that's going to have a big effect in a, in a whole bunch of ways. But if you just reopen the New York Times today, there are stories on how Google, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, and, and several of the other big tech companies are buying up space, uh, leasing space in New York City like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, huge amounts of space. Huge right? amounts Amazon of space, millions of square feet. Same thing is happening in London, England. At the same time as everybody is, particularly in London, saying, oh, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead, it'll never recover. Well, there are quite a lot of smart people who are saying, forget it, that, that's going to happen. And this is because the truth is human beings have always loved going to cities, particularly young, smart, energetic, mm -hmm. ambitious human beings have always said, I'm going to the city to make my life. Every, you know, it's, it's the story of every novel. Uh, it, it's the story of every, uh, every human era. Uh, and that ain't going to change. Maybe people will move out a little bit faster when they have kids uh, maybe uh, the, the, the Mississaugas and the Markhams and the Oakvilles uh, and the Kitchener-Waterloos uh, will be relatively more attractive. But is there still going to be a big uh, office presence in downtown Toronto, the dominant office, office presence in the region in downtown Toronto? Yes. In Manhattan, yes. In the city of London, yes. I mean, it's fascinating because the smart money, you know, if you open up the paper and continue to page through, you, you, you see the smart money going in opposite directions, or at least talking about it. The ones who are putting the money down, Amazon, Facebook. I mean, Facebook just bought REI's headquarters in, in Portland. Amazon bought the old Lord & Taylor building from WeWork. Right. You Google know, so just it, signed a very big lease uh, in central London at King's Cross. Hudson Yards, Amazon and Hudson yep. Yards. I mean, and, and on it goes. Yet you've got your... You know, your Shopify's, Twitter and Square saying you work for home forever. Not that you can't research, you know, change your mind about that. So, I mean, you, you had an article in the Globe and Mail, a great article last week that just talked about what you're saying, right? That, that you know, to be young and, and ambitious uh, means you live in a city and maybe this all makes the cities a little more affordable because that's the other you yeah. know, contradiction. And you touched on it, right? Is, is this thing that makes the cities great, attracts people to live there, but then... They become so unaffordable that the people 
the interesting people who make it great can't afford yeah, to live yeah. there. So it's, <laughs> it, it feels like this, you know, it, that's the, the, the consistent yeah. paradox of great it, cities. It is. No, it, uh, it's, it's like all things in life. Uh, too much success kills the success. But it, what it really does is it spreads the success. So, you know, I, I love Kitchener-Waterloo, but Kitchener-Waterloo would not exist if Toronto didn't exist. And uh, so I hope that the life vibrancy you see in Kitchener-Waterloo is going to happen in Hamilton and Barrie and Peterborough, uh, a whole bunch of other places around. I think it probably will. But uh, you'll still need the furnace burning hot uh, in the center. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, for the listeners who are in the retail sector or retailers themselves, how should retailers be thinking about their strategy in the major urban markets? I mean, if you looked at it today, if you took a snapshot in time today, you're like, let those leases expire. There's nobody there. The worst case scenario, I'm in an indoor mall attached to an office building and I sell apparel. And, and that's kind of the, the trifecta of, of bad things to be doing right now from a sales perspective, at least in the very, very short term. But how, you know, you have that benefit of, of both looking backwards and, and understanding the history, your sense of urban development. What, what would your advice to retailers be? Should they, yeah. should they put up on their leases in downtown? You've got, you've got e-commerce that is just racing ahead in a great acceleration of 63% this year alone, kind of yeah. obviates the need for, for more stores. Uh, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to, you know, to, to give advice uh, in any specificity because the, the other thing, as I said in the article, it's a bit too early to tell. You know, mm. uh, I don't know if, if there are five acts in the play, we're, I think, in the middle of act three <laughs> right mm. now. Yeah, I was going to say, we haven't quite act. seen uh, what's going to happen later on. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we don't know whether a virus is going to be successful. We don't know how successful it's going to be. You know, there's one scenario uh, uh, that, it, that it's totally successful and, and uh, it, we can all put away our masks and get back to where we were. Uh, yeah. I suspect that the vaccine. Be the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are some things which are definitely happening, and, and the best clue to what's happening is to figure out what was beginning to happen before COVID. Mm. The first, mm-hmm. as you say, is e-commerce. There is a, a, a that was growing, but quite slowly actually. Uh, it's e-commerce market share uh, before COVID. It has exploded. Uh, when you when you get old fogies like me uh, quite actively shopping that way, uh, I, I know that the rest of the world is. So that mm-hmm. is going to mean that actual f- the demand, the, the the dollars behind physical retail space is just going to be that much smaller. So there's going to be less of it. There are going to be a few areas which I think are going to be really, really tricky. If we've only got two-thirds of the people working in the big office towers uh, then we only need two thirds of the retail space underneath uh, those office towers. Right. Uh, I, I went for a wander run through the path system just to just to have a look the other day. <laughs> just to have a quiet thought amongst yourself. Right? Oh, it's 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 you know it's terrifying. Yeah. I really feel yeah. for all of those retailers down there. You know, clearly there's going to have to be a massive retrenchment in that. I think then there's going to be the great winnowing out. What was happening before? COVID was that smaller shopping centers uh, were uncompetitive with uh, the, the Yorkdales, the Square Ones, uh, the, the other big, big successful mm. shopping centers. So you're going to see, I, I think, disappearance, which is already beginning to happen, uh, redevelopment of a lot of the smaller uh, retail centers. Do you, are you a, um, 
we've been tracking this trend or I've been tracking this trend around live, work, play, shop, which has this, yep. you know, Hudson Yards being the kind of, you know, one of those, um, one of those uh, examples of that where there's shopping mixed with living and you've got, you know, in Winnipeg and, and in Scarborough, you've got condos opening up on or, or at shopping malls, that kind of consolidation of, of purpose. Do you think, you think that's a sustainable trend? Um, Yes, I think to be honest, uh, in a number of shopping malls, uh, they're basically that their retail function is going to fade away to uh, a, a local service function. Uh, I think that's going to happen in quite a few because there just isn't the destination demand uh, for them any longer. But I, I so I, I think that uh, the other trend, which I don't know what the implications are, but I sure as heck know there will be, is that all the big guys, Nordstrom's, Lord & Taylor, Macy's, uh, The Bay, Indigo, are in big trouble. And these used to be the anchors of uh, the, the major uh, comprehensive retail centers. Mm-hmm. They also had a heck of a lot of square feet. And, yeah. you know, we all remember down on the, in the classic Eaton Center when um, – uh, Eaton's and, and then uh, successive uh, followers to Eaton's yeah. uh, all and faded away. And now yeah. uh, Nordstrom's wonderfully took it over with a great store. Uh, you wonder whether that's a kind of cursed ground. Well, uh, the other for, challenge for, for, you know, the other challenge for the, for the uh, shopping centers is that they turn to uh, restaurants and bespoke food courts yeah. and fitness pl- and fitness very um, very to drive traffic. But, you know, there's a limit yeah. uh, again to how much that space that can actually take up. I, I suspect that we're going mm. to see uh, some of those larger units turned into office space, uh, uh, or, or even potentially into, into uh, converted into housing space. I think the other retail impact that I'm watching is what the main street. Uh, mm. impact will be. Essentially, what has been happening over the last several decades on Main Streets is that pretty much all the functional shopping uh, on Main Streets has disappeared. You know, uh, there's, there's still a hardware store on my piece of Main Street, uh, but anything else uh, that's what I would call useful uh, has basically gone. Uh, there's no next to no clothing shopping, and w- so women's apparel, the other big driver of of, uh, of, of retail streets, is is not much there, apart from a very few specialty ones. Could, uh, could COVID change that though? I mean, I, I was speaking in my last podcast. I was interviewing the head of retail for Google, and he tells me that over the past ten years, the the term near me attached to searches has gone up six hundred fold. Yeah. Uh, in other words, could this be the upside to the two thirds of people are a third less of people are downtown, but that does mean the other third is yeah. is out in the community. Could it? Could this be the beginning of a, uh, a yeah, renaissance? Maybe I suspect the nearest me is your keypad. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, basically you're typing into Amazon. No, what, I mean I think what's happened to those strips is that they have become what I would call entertainment retail. Uh, they are. Uh, Bars, restaurants, kind of uh, specialty uh, uh, items, uh, not places that deliver uh, a kind of uh, needed function uh, in any way. You go to the big store for the big shopping center for that or, or, uh, or you get it online. To a huge extent, especially in a city like Toronto, uh, those strips are fueled by successive waves of, of immigration. Some of the most thriving strips, you go up onto Lawrence Avenue East, uh, which is the Iranian and Syrian area. It's fantastic. 
Mm. Uh, I mean, it's 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 as ugly as all get out. Man, oh man, oh man. But it's, it's vibrant, it's, right? It's vibrant. It's, it's interesting. It's Things are happening, right? That's right. right, on. right so on. I think uh, some of the more white bread strips are going to have a hell of a hard mm. time. You know, Toronto accepts 150,000 ish immigrants every year. You know, what's job one? Frankly, job one is usually working in the food business. Uh, and so that I think uh, we, we can look up to. But in places that are, have less immigration, I'm doing a fair bit in, in work in Ottawa right now. And there mm. I would be very worried about mm. the, the future of its uh, retail strips. Yeah. I hope you can come up with some ideas for Spark Street because uh, I'm an Ottawa native and it's been the perennial. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great that's idea. A that's a never happened. Example. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's funny as you, as you think. Just kind of my last thought is, I think as you describe areas and and new Canadians, I think of Spadina, uh, the Spadina area over the over the past hundred years in Toronto that that it was settled and then. Uh, different communities settled it, and now it's kind of a high-tech place. I mean, it's, it, it yeah, is this interesting transformation. When I arrived, <clears throat> I arrived in town uh, 50 mm. years ago, there was not a Chinese restaurant on Spadina. Right. It was essentially a Jewish and Eastern European street. The Chinese are now moving out. You can see that. And the up to Mark, wave, moving to Markham, right? Moving yeah, north. that's right. Yeah. And, and they're being followed by young, hip, uh, yeah. tech-driven right. stuff. And that will go on forever. That's why Spadina is such a marvelous street. Is it? It's sort of the barometer of what's happening in the city. Well, Joe, this has been such a great conversation, and, and thank you for bringing your your insights um, to uh, to the podcast. I think we could probably talk about this for quite a long time. But in in lieu of that, for the listeners, do pick up uh, Joe's book, uh, Perfect City, because it is really a, a nice, uh, a great read, and and uh, a nice uh, review of cities, what makes them great, and and potentially what what is the future as much as we can see it today so joe thanks so much for being on the voice of retail podcast my, my pleasure it's been a lot of fun thanks a lot well thanks to robin jason and joe for being my guests plus on novos and range for their support of this episode if you like this podcast please subscribe on apple spotify or your favorite podcast platform great review and be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry i'm michael leblanc founder and president of emmy leblanc and company inc you can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co or of course on linkedin Until next time, have a safe week.